Hey everyone and welcome back to this week's episode of Last Second Covers. I'm Chaz here with Sula as always, and this week we've got a special guest for you, our legendary NBA expert D Mills. You've probably seen his stuff on our Stratos Sports blog, he's got the great bullheaded debates, but be sure to check him out if you haven't already. And what better time for him to join than for our very first exclusive basketball episode. First up, the NBA Conference Finals are finally here. We've only got four teams now left chasing the coveted Larry O'Brien trophy, but for the teams not lucky enough to be in the playoffs, the NBA lottery also just drew the other night. And we've got our bottom of the barrel as always for this week, so stick around and you'll see just exactly what we think is the worst of the worst this week. So get ready, we'll discuss all this and more on this week's episode of Last Second Covers. Second covers presented by Straight Up Sports. So as always, we start the show off with the last second cover of the week. That should be expected on last second covers. But for the new people who haven't uh, tuned in yet, pretty much we just go over one bet that just covered the last second. This was actually a big one in the Eastern Conference Finals of the NBA. Game one was the Raptors at the Bucks. Bucks favored minus six and a half in that game, uh, with an over under combined of two eighteen. And what made this game especially frustrating for some betters was the fact that. The Raptors, just like you took, Sula. Yep. You had the Raptors plus six and a half. Uh, they led the, the entire game. They were up 83 to 76 going into the third quarter, and they were up every single quarter beforehand. And it looked like they had it in the bag in Milwaukee. Milwaukee was not shooting well. They shot 11 for 44 from three-point and still somehow managed to stay in the game. And then all of a sudden, with the Raptors up seven at the at the beginning of the fourth quarter, no one on Toronto, except for Kyle Lowry, could hit a field goal. The rest of the team, outside of Lowry, went 0 for 15 from the field in the fourth. And I think it should just be expected from that point that if that team's going to go ice cold, the Bucks are going to capitalize, and that's exactly what happened. The Bucks outscored the Raptors 32-17 to in the fourth to win by eight, with a final score of the Bucks 108 and the Raptors 100, meaning that the Bucks ended up covering at the very last minute. Plus, just a little note that under hit surprisingly to my surprise at least at 208 hit under the 218 but the biggest surprise and i think that goes for the battle of betters as well is that the bucks somehow pulled out a minus six and a half advantage out of their ass at the end yeah i mean the raptors were leading basically by seven or eight the entire game i was sitting there thinking you know what i'm in great shape there's no way they're gonna blow it and then they didn't score for the last three and a half minutes not a single point not even a free throw? Not even a free throw. The That's last absurd. their last points were Kawhi Leonard free throws. Ooh. And I mean, we know by now my disdain for Kyle Lowry. <laughs> You're not gonna win many games with Kyle Lowry as your best player. But he had a good game. They wasted a good Kyle Lowry game. Oh, I know. Unreal. <laughs> but this is actually a good point. We'll transition a little bit to introducing our NBA insider that we had on in our intro, D Mills. Uh welcome to the podcast, my friend. How's it uh, going? Doing pretty well, man. I know you're an NBA insider. What do you think about Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals? Yeah, a couple thoughts on it. Um, I thought it went pretty much how I expected. I mean, I didn't expect Toronto to be leading most of the way, um, but it always just felt like it was really going to come down to the wire, and you're just kind of waiting for Milwaukee to make that push. So we get around to the fourth quarter. 
They finally start hitting their shots. You know, Chaz, as you mentioned, everyone outside of Lowry goes 0 for 15 in the fourth there. I mean, if you think about it, if they go even four or five from, you know, five for 15 from the field, uh, everyone else, they win that game. Um, and so there's really no excuse for that. And I thought it was good to see Lowry out there playing well. Um, you know, over the years, he's someone who I've criticized as not really showing up in the postseason. I'm um, going back the last couple of years about how the Raptors are always one of the top seeds, but could never right. really overcome that hump. Um, and so it was good, you know, to see him playing well out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, it, I thought it went pretty much how I expected. Um, it was a good, close, competitive game. You know, the cover really came down to those free throws there at the end. And yeah, it close, but um, it was a good game. It was just, you make a lot of good points. It was very surprising. First of all, uh, the Raptors seem to get a top seed in the playoff almost every year. But to me, it was just very surprising that, you know, they trade at the beginning of the season for a guy in Kawhi Leonard who has been pretty instrumental to this team. Um, I think playing a bigger role than DeMar DeRozan had, even though DeRozan was a leader on that team. Kawhi seems to be the guy. And he had himself a great game. He finished with almost a double-double with 31 points and nine rebounds. Uh, but he was nowhere to be found in the fourth quarter except for a couple free throws here and there. It really was just the Kyle Lowry show. And as much as he turned it on with 30 points himself, uh, the rest of the team was, I mean, MIA. Marcus Soule finished 2 for 11. Pascal Siakam finished 6 for 20. They combined for only 21 points together. And for two guys who are on the starting rotation in the front court, I think it's almost impossible to win a game if they're both ice cold and Kawhi is nowhere to be found in that fourth. So I, I am not surprised that the Bucks won, but I am surprised that Toronto was able to hold on for so long and then collapse. Yeah, I'm again, I'm also not surprised that the Bucks won, especially when the entire team outside of Kyle Lowry shoots four for 35 from three. Yeah, that is I'm not great with quick math. That's low. <laughs> that's a percentage right there. Dude, that's just barely over 10%. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, um, you know, Milwaukee's, uh, there's a reason it's a top seed. They won 60 games this year going into it in the regular season. Um, and Giannis is, David, you had a debate about this, uh, the whole MVP debate, whether it should be Harden or Giannis. Um, and Giannis showed up. He had 24 points and 14 rebounds. And he played like an MVP. But it still was like, the rest of the Bucks team wasn't, playing like the Bucks that we know. It seemed like they had a lot of struggles themselves. Brooke Lopez though, who Sula, you <laughs> criticized vehemently. He made me eat pro. <laughs> <laughs> also, I would like to say I thought Brooke Lopez was like 36. The guy's 30. That's why I thought, I'm pretty sure I said he should retire. Yeah, you said he should be out of the league were your words. I thought he was a lot older than he is. <laughs> and then he exploded for 29 points. Yeah, double-double. He had 11 boards too. Yeah. Unreal. That's it. That's a guy that you have to feel good for as well. You know, that surprises me when you talk about his age. It feels like he's been around forever. Um, and it feels like he's never been in a situation like this off the top of my head where he's competing at such a high level, um, you know, in the conference finals. And he's bounced around teams. He's been a solid player his whole career. But it's good to see him uh, showing up and playing pretty well in, in a huge game. We'll see if that continues. Yeah. It's just crazy to think of – I know we talked about this in the past, but Brooke Lopez now – is not the Brooke Lopez that was on the Nets, that was on the Lakers. Um, I think he was starting to develop a three ball a bit in Los Angeles, but he was not a he was not a three point shooter like he is now. He took eleven threes last night or the other night and and hit four of them. I mean, we're talking over thirty three percent from three. I mean, this is not Steph Curry, but for someone who couldn't shoot 
from behind the arc at all when he was in Brooklyn. Uh, he's totally transformed his game. Yeah, for someone who's uh, seven feet tall, like that's that's crazy. Not so much in today's game, but especially when he came into the league, this is something he really had to adapt. Because yeah, when, as you said, when he was a net, I don't even think he even like looked at the three point line. Yeah, like, he just he was in the post all day long grabbing boards. He was a double double machine. Still is apparently. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> funny because. Marcus all is the, the pretty much the same way, you know, his counterpart on the uh, Raptors, mm-hmm. you know, a guy that did not used to shoot a lot of threes. Um, he only made two field goals in game one. They were both three pointers. So, you know, similar type of guy, both over seven feet, um, you know, both were great players in the post and just developing to the modern game and being able to hit that three ball. Yeah. And that seemed, uh, that's a very good point. And to that point, I, I think we see a lot of, big men starting to develop a three-pointer to try and stay up with the just the trend of the game you know yeah someone who comes to my mind is Blake Griffin who was one yeah. of the mo- he was the number one overall pick when he came out of Oklahoma uh, and has been one of the most dominant players down in the post and down low and now for Detroit he's like an all-around specialist he's knocking three balls down left and right and I, I if I hadn't watched the NBA for two years I look at Brooke Lopez or I'm sorry Blake Griffin taking those shots I'm like what are you doing, man? But th- that's part of his game now. Um, David, I'm actually curious. What are your thoughts on on how that's starting to transition? You know, it's it's surprising, but when you look at how the game is, um, you know, that's just the way that it's trending. And I think that um, I honestly think it's pr- impressive some of these guys that have developed three point shots. Blake, even with his step back, um, because it seemed like the evolution of the bigs they were kind of trending away with the whole. Uh, small ball lineup and idea because of the defensive side of the ball where they could not switch onto these perimeter players who could, um, you know, dance around and hit these shots over them, um, you know, in the pick and roll. And so it seems like that's the reason why teams are starting to go smaller. But then on the offensive side of the ball, now you have all these guys hitting threes as well. Um, and it's pretty impressive because, you know, like we're all saying a couple of years ago, could you imagine Marcus All or Brooke Lopez consistently hitting threes? I mean, there was no way. I never would have thought about that because it's not like these guys were young and developing their shots. You know, they had been in the league in the for a while um, and still, you know, getting that to go. So it's been impressive, but that's just the way that it's trending. I mean, even, you know, Zion and some of these guys coming out um, as dominant as they are, you know, I think that a three ball is a big part of it. And that's a criticism for some of these guys. And that's just the way the game is. I mean, it may continue to develop another way, but. Um, to play consistent minutes, I think you have to at least be able to knock down open threes as big men now, or you're really not going to be, you know, as productive out there. It's a really good point. And then you go to the um, one of the teams that's best at knocking down threes on the other side of everything in the Western Conference Finals. Um, the Warriors have already taken game one over the Blazers. They're up one nothing in that series. But Golden State is notorious for shooting threes and making them the, the best three-point shooting team in the league. Um, All time. All time, and Steph is the all time greatest three point shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to, to recap what happened in game one, the Warriors blew them out. I was hoping that the Blazers would be competitive, but the Warriors blew them out of the water. Final, they they outscored them by 22. Final score was 116 to 94 in game one. Um, the only really bright spot for Portland is former Nick and uh dislocated shoulder man, Ennis <laughs> Cantor. He had, himself, uh, <laughs> he had himself a double-double with 10 points and 16 boards. But other than that, um, I mean, last night was the Steph Curry show. It was 36 points on 9 for 15 from 3 and, and over 50% from the field. I mean, he shot himself lights out. Meanwhile, lesser brother Seth 
was abysmal. He was one for seven and made one three in the game. So Portland really just, it seemed like they had no match. I know playing in Golden State is difficult, but game one was a, a disappointment, I think, to say the least. And yeah. just, I was, it's hoping for, that these two teams would be competitive. Yeah, you know what, uh, you know what this kind of reminds me of? It reminds me, of, at least Seth Curry reminds me of, you know, in uh, middle school, you'd be playing in the gym. And then there'd be that one kid, maybe like a girl would walk by and he would try extra super hard. <laughs> yeah. to like, I feel like Seth Curry is like, like he took his seven three-point shots. He's really trying to impress his parents out there. <laughs> yeah. like He's trying to show everybody, I'm not just Steph's brother. Granted, I really like Seth Curry. I think he's a great shooter. Yeah, he that's, is. That's the feel I get from this a little bit. Well, you know, they got the the families are in the, uh, the, in, the in the stands. and yeah, Their mom has the best jersey I've ever seen. She what? didn't go typical like, side and side half the front is uh blazers for seth and then the back is for uh steph for the uh warriors i yeah. think it's great that's that so much better because the half and halves like down the middle that you've seen over the years oh my god it's god awful so oh, it really stupid a- like it just looks terrible <laughs> at least with these ones like if if someone's walking down the street you're like oh nice like warriors jersey and then they turn around you're like oh oh boy <laughs> <laughs> um but it really was. Steph was the the better brother mm-hmm. in this game. I don't think that's too surprising. No. But, you know, he had talked um, pre-game, post-game about how mixed feelings he has about playing against Seth because, mm-hmm. uh, well, A, Steph has already won three titles. Two MVPs. Two MVPs. Uh, and Seth really doesn't have anything to hang his hat on, sadly. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's just a tough situation, I think, would be the, the best way to put it. That's the most yeah. frank thing. But his teammate in Portland, Dame Dalla, who we all love, mm-hmm. uh, he had himself an okay game. He shot four for 12 with 19 points. It's it, it, decent to say the least, but for someone like we talked about, Sula, a man on a mission, yeah, um, it's not going to get it done against a team like Golden State. So No, and as much as I do like Dame, I love Steph Curry. And I not to say I'm happy that Durant is hurt, but I love when Steph Curry is the guy running the show in Golden State. It's like when uh, Kevin Durant is out, they're 28 and one in the last 29 games. Yeah. When Steph plays, I love when this guy takes over the offense. It's it's almost orgasmic to watch him do it. I take that. <laughs> That's back. how I feel. It's too. orgasmic. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. It was so much fun watching him. You know, three four years ago before KD got there, and you know once he got there. I mean, it was unfair. It was over. But he's such a fun player to watch. And I think people forgot how good and how much fun he was to watch three years ago before KD got there. So it's fun to see him go off like this um, in the playoffs when he has the chance. And then, you know, a lot of people are assuming KD is going to leave. It's going to be fun to watch the Warriors again next year um, with him hopefully doing this again. And and he's a top MVP candidate again, as long as he can keep it up. So um, I was going to say about Dame, too. You know, it's he's such a great player, but this is the basically the point in the postseason where you have to kind of hold the top players accountable. Right. It's the reason why, you know, Harden has been criticized and I continue to kind of criticize him for not taking over, you know, on the stat sheet. Maybe they have OK games. He had 19 points, um, you know, didn't shoot the three ball awful. But this is, you know, the point in the postseason, especially when their whole offense runs through him where he has to kind of dominate. Um, And the same thing was true for Kawhi who he just didn't show up in the fourth. Um, I think fatigue is a big issue there. And that's another thing, but I think that's something to watch going forward is um, his fatigue coming off of a seven-game series. He basically just disappeared in the fourth. Um, so that's something to watch kind of going forward. But, yeah, in, in terms of Dane, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like he 
you at least have to shoot your shots. And when you get to the conference finals, I believe this is the first time he's been there. Um, you know, outside of any injury potential or whatever it is, I mean, 12 shots is just not enough. He's got to get up more shots. Um, and, and he'll see him go down. And then, you know, that's when you start to dominate. So that's what I'll be looking forward. Yeah. Well, we got the, the good thing about doing this is that, you know, it's a best of seven series. So even though they're down one nothing, anything could happen. Uh, hopefully game one was not an indicator of things to come because if it's four blowout games for the Warriors, it's going to be uh, just another tough one to watch to, and just have the Warriors walk into the finals. But and I think that I think that Dame will turn it around because he played pretty poorly in game seven, uh, the last series as well. Um, so he's due to to get hot and you know hopefully have a good good couple games. So I I hope so because Steph has proven that. He's not going to let up on you. 30, what was it, 36 points? Yeah. Uh, uh, just pretty much to seal the deal in game one. And and uh, they still play game two in Golden State. I, I'm hoping that Portland can find a way to just take one on the road and bring it back to Portland because it's crazy out there in Oregon with those fans. Um, they have a, a hell of a home court advantage when they go over there. So hopefully that means it's, it's good things to come from Portland if they could just take game two tomorrow. Um, but that actually brings up a good point. We all have different predictions as to what the NBA finals are going to be. Uh, when we first started talking about this, I actually had, uh, Sula, you had the Bucks against the Sixers in the Eastern Conference finals and the Warriors and the Blazers. You got the Western right. Uh, I got the Eastern right, the Bucks and the Raptors, but I missed on the West. I said to be the Rockets and the Blazers. Um, but now that we have things set and it's only one game in the series for both of them. What are your guys' thoughts on what the NBA Finals is going to look like and what the outcome is going to be? Uh, I think it's going to end up being, obviously, it's going to be the Warriors again. Like, obviously? It's obvious. Like, it's it's obvious. I, there's, <laughs> there's honestly no debate I can make for the Blazers at this point. I mean, it's not that they're a bad team. It's just that the war, this Warriors team is probably one of the greatest of all time. So I think they're... It's going to be the Warriors. I think it's going to end up being the Bucks because, as like we keep saying, that Dame is on a mission. Giannis is on a goddamn mission. That mm. guy is a Mack truck running through Priuses out there. And, um, <laughs> I, like, I don't know. Hopefully, for the Bucks' sake, I hope Eric Bledsoe can start to start playing better because he is a very talented guy and he's just not been shooting well. Like, re he really hasn't had a great season. But I think if he can turn it up, then he's the Bucks are gonna just run through the Raptors, honestly. Yeah, game one was a good example of what you just said too with Eric Bledsoe. He played a full thirty minutes and only scored nine points and didn't hit a single three. Yeah, I think he shot what three for twelve. Three for twelve. Yeah, um, that's a tough one. Uh, D Mills, who do you have going to the NBA Finals? Uh, shockingly, I have the Bucks and the Warriors as well. <laughs> um, I, I agree with Matt. Out of you know, in the West, um, there's really no case to be made for the Blazers you know I'm pulling for them I hope it's at least a competitive series but even Kevin Durant who we haven't talked a lot about in last I heard he's still not close to coming back um, but it really does not matter I mean when you have Steph and Clay you know clicking like this there's really no team in the league that can beat them um, and you know Steph has his ups and downs that's what it seems like it tends to be he goes nine for 15 last game he may struggle the next game but in a seven-game series, it's just hard to imagine the Blazers winning four. So um, the Warriors in the West, and then in the East, I'm taking the Bucks as well. Um, I think it's going to be a very competitive series. You know, I don't think it's over after this game one. Even if the, the Bucks, you know, win game two in a relatively close game, I don't think it's over. Um, I think that Toronto has a great home, home court advantage. They're motivated after being knocked out consistently, you know, the last couple of years. 
Um, so it's going to be interesting, but I do have the Warriors and the Bucks, and I think that the East is going to be a lot more competitive than the West, at least. You know, I, I like to have some sort of debate or friction on how it's going to go, but I, it just seems consensus that this is going to be Bucks warriors mm-hmm. I, I agree with both of you. I don't think the West is going to be close. I think it's just going to be a cakewalk for the Warriors once again. I'm hoping this series in the, in the East goes seven because, David, just like you mentioned, the Raptors are a motivated team. They haven't had success in the postseason. The Drake curse is real. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he fucked my Sixers. That wasn't very nice, Drake. Yeah, his, his, shorts. yeah Sixers shorts. Well, that was hilarious. That it, was absurd. Yeah, I feel like Toronto just has such a chip on their shoulder, even as a number two seed. Whether that be the reason that the Bucks have gotten all the attention in the number one seed in the East, or the fact that everyone just counts the Raptors out from the get-go because of all their past failures in the playoffs. Um, I feel like they just have such a such a point to prove to the rest of the league and to to the NBA fan base as a whole that they're going to come out guns a blazing. Hopefully that means coming out in game two. But game one, I think, was even a good indicator that for three quarters of that game, they won. They blew it in the fourth. But for three quarters, they were going all out and and really like beating up on the Bucks. So if they could do that again and just find a way to hold on and thinking that this series could go to seven. But I still think the Bucks are going to end up taking that. Yeah, I think it'll end up going either six or seven. I lean more towards seven, only because Kawhi Leonard is a machine. Yeah, quite literally, he's a robot. <laughs> but, um, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I think it'll end up going to seven. I just think that you know Giannis is having this MVP season. That I think it's he's and the overall depth and uh, starting rotation for the Bucks is just more talented, and I think that they're going to end up pulling it off. Especially Brooke Lopez, keep that up. Oh, yeah. I think that uh, Kyle Lowry is a big X factor um, for the Raptors in this series. So, you know, again, I really think they should have won this game. If the rest of the team doesn't go 0 for 15, they should win this game because that included a lot of free throws at the end for the Bucs that they were able to convert. But, I mean, this really did come right down to the wire. And, you know, if he plays even close to how he played in game one, even for two or three games in this series – and, you know, if, as long as Kawhi comes back and is able to go back to how he's been dominating, they should be able to get those wins. So, you know, I think it's going to be competitive. I think it goes seven as well. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of X factors, but I think Kyle Lowry is the big one to watch. Well, here's hoping. But let's say it does go Bucks warriors in the finals, because that seems to be the consensus among us. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you guys think happens if that's the case? I'm leaning towards Warriors in a gentleman's sweep five games. Wow. The Warriors, well, the two games that they played each other this season, the Warriors took both quite easily. And, you know, by the time they're in the uh, finals, Durant will most likely be back. There's a chance DeMarcus Cousins will be back. That would be if, wild. And if he's back for the finals, I don't I don't see the uh, Bucks really even making a dent. They'll, they'll be close games. They'll take one because the Warriors will start fucking around. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't see them taking many games away from Golden State. Wow. Okay. Uh, D Mills, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, it's interesting because um, at least some of the numbers that I've seen, they were basically a worse team with DeMarcus in the lineup this year. Um, you know, on paper, and basically what he gives you with this three-point shooting, shot-blocking ability, they I think they are a better team. But, I mean, you're talking about them being so dominant in game one against the Blazers and then now potentially incorporating two starters back in. I just don't know how that's going to go. Of course, on paper, it looks great. Um, but the reason for me picking the Bucks in seven, which is uh, my pick, is just that there's really no concrete reason to go with it. I mean, we're talking about maybe the greatest team of all time. But I look at it as one of those things where it's sort of the end of a dynasty. 
Um, you know, what I would liken it to would be the early 2000 Lakers when you had Kobe and Shaq and there, you know, started to be some feuds toward the end of that. Um, they eventually lost to the Pistons in 2004. And I think something like that could happen here where you have a young upstart team led by, you know, an MVP and Giannis um, that just kind of runs them off. And they have a style of play, I think, that uh, makes the Warriors vulnerable, which is a superstar, um, an MVP that can, you know, drive the lane. He's the Greek freak. I mean, he does it all. But then outside of that, they have shooters pretty much everywhere. You know, as long as Brogdon can find his groove and, and come back and continue to play well. And they were, I think, the best defensive team in the league um, statistically. So that, if you're going to beat the Warriors, which is almost impossible, I think that would be the formula to do it. So it's going to be a great series, I think. But that would be the reason I'm picking the Bucs and Uh I think you make a good point. But I think comparing them to the uh, early 2000s Lakers might be a bit of a stretch. Only because the ego of Kobe and Shaq butting heads is a lot different than if it was Steph and Durant, I would agree with you. But I think the issue being Draymond is a far less issue than Steph and the two real alphas on the team going head to head. That's why I don't see them really budging. Yeah, that's not it was more of a comparison about just the dynasty kind of coming to kind of on its last leg. I agree. I mean, there's no real risk right now, you know, as far as we know. Um, But I think that the bigger reason for it is just how they match up. You know, they don't have anyone who could stop Giannis. They're going to throw four or five guys at him, you know, probably Iggy, Draymond, um, Clay. But, you know, ultimately, I think that he's going to get his Giannis. And then it's going to come down to whether everyone else makes shots. Um, And, yeah, it's going to I predicted to be a good series. But I think that the Warriors are more vulnerable this year than they've been. And I don't think in the last four or five years they've faced a team even close to the Bucs. I mean, the 2016 Cavs that they lost to, that was just, you know, LeBron going beast mode, which is what I could see Giannis doing in this series. Um, but they're a really cohesive unit, and the Bucs play really well together. So um, that's why I see them pulling it out eventually. Yeah. I mean, the the little debate about ego is a definitely an interesting one because – yeah, Draymond's definitely not an alpha on that team, but mm. I'm sure it hurts the chemistry, at least in some sense, for for each, for the both of them to be calling each other bitches and snakes and while in the huddle. Uh, yeah. I'm sure that doesn't help out too much. Plus, when you look at uh, all the rumors circulating about Kevin Durant leaving, uh, Clay Thompson possibly leaving, you know, we don't have the inside scoop on what that locker room is like, but True. I can't imagine. Look at what happened in Boston with Kyrie. Uh, that whole locker room fell apart because of all those rumors. Despite that, even if that's the case, I feel like the Warriors are just ta- too talented uh, to let a Giannis-led Bucks team to beat them. I think they'll at least, Milwaukee, however, keep it close. Mm. Uh, I say the Warriors take it, but in seven. I think it's going to be a really tough, gritty series. Um, but I think just the the Warriors' advantage of being all-around faceted, especially in the three-ball game, uh, I think it's going to come down to allowing them to take that series, plus the experience of having already won three finals and Kevin Durant, I'm hoping, wanting to go out on a last leg of getting a finals because God knows when he comes to New York, he's not winning one. If he <laughs> He's <laughs> going to New York. They're not going to win. One thing about that um, series, too, if it comes to that, that I think not a lot of people are talking about are the facts, the fact that the Bucs do have home support as well. So that's kind of if you're in the middle there, that's why I'm kind of leaning towards the Bucs. Um, Because home court, especially later in the playoffs, in the finals, is huge. Um, So that's going to be an advantage for them. But, but yeah, it should be interesting. Well, you know, speaking of the Knicks, there are teams who are bad. There are teams who are terrible, like the Knicks. 
And those teams who didn't make the playoffs just had the NBA draft lottery uh, just happened the other day. Pretty much, and D-Mills, you wrote an article about this on, on whether you think the new draft lottery rules are good or not. This was before the draft happened. Um, yep. And we'll touch on, on on just exactly what we think, but just a small recap for anyone who missed out on the draft lottery. It was a pretty uh, exciting one if you are a Pelicans fan. They had a 6% chance to land the top pick. People were talking about the Pelicans wanting to trade for that number one pick and trading away Anthony Davis. Now they don't have to do that. They landed number one with just a 6% chance and now can get Zion Williamson and still trade AD for someone else if they want. Um, but the Pelicans got number one. The Grizzlies, who also had a 6% chance of getting the number one pick, somehow get number two. And then it goes the Knicks, who had the top percentage. The Lakers, who are a 2% chance to make it in the number one. They got the number four pick. And then the next favorites, the Cavs got five. The Suns, another favorite, got six. D-Mills, your Bulls, who had a 12.5% chance, got seven. And then the Hawks, who had a 10.5% chance, got eight. So it was a it was a pretty big shakeup for what many projected with the draft lottery would be just by statistical chance. Um, but I think it raises the point, you know, the NBA just changed these rules this year to allow more competitiveness for anti-tanking and act a way for teams not to tank when the end of the season comes, especially when you're a terrible team. I'm not sure I like that so much. I love the idea of anti-tanking, but what are your guys' thoughts? Like, Are these are the new rules the right way to go about it? Uh, I think yes. So there's a lot to touch on here. Um, this just got really, really interesting. So for a lot of reasons, the obvious one being the Pelicans winning the lottery, um, going to take Zion unless they trade out of that. And, you know, that's a whole separate thing of Zion and AD, who's going to stay, who's going to go. But in terms of the lottery specifically, I like it overall. Now, yes, my Bulls got screwed. And when you look at it, um, <laughs> the teams with the three best chances equal odds at 14%. None of them even ended up in the top two. So while I, you know, personally may not like it with the Bulls being seven, um, I like the shakeup. It makes it a lot more interesting when you look at the percentages and the odds, um, kind of equalizing that out. And I think that's what's kind of interesting is that it's going to be like this every year, you know, if they keep these rules, which is you won't really know who has a top you know, chance of the pick. And um, I don't know if they're going to kind of expand this about, you know, making it a little more equal or whatever. But um, overall, I never followed the, you know, the draft lottery in the past. And I was glued to it this year. You know, I was really locked in. It made it interesting. So, um, you know, I think that if the Knicks had wanted, a lot of people were going to say, oh, it's rigged, whatever. Um, but this kind of made it interesting. I don't think that anyone wants to see Zion in uh, New Orleans or John Morant in Memphis, but it does make it interesting because of the possibilities for trades and all that. So um, I liked it. It really shook things up. Nothing was predictable and nothing really ended up the way you thought it would. So, um, you know, as a general fan of the game, I think that's something that um, is fun to see. I like what the league is doing and trying to prevent tanking. I think it's the right move to do because uncompetitive basketball play is some of the worst some of the worst thing to spend your money on to watch as a fan whether you're live or you're paying for cable god forbid you're paying for cable still but <laughs> if, if you're trying to watch especially as a Knicks fan you know you watch these games and they're playing awful basketball but the reason they're playing awful basketball is not because the Knicks are tanking because they have these guys and the rest of them they fucking blow <laughs> yeah. i mean that <laughs> roster is so bad that they, I think they are legitimately trying to be playoff contenders with that mm -hmm. roster, and they won 17 games. So the thing that I don't like about the new rules, and this is 
aside from the Knicks getting three, I still think they got a pretty good pick at three considering what just happened. But I, I feel as though the teams that are the lowest of the low who need the help the most uh, get pretty gypped with the new rules and everyone having these equal odds because the teams that got the top two picks this year in the Pelicans and the Grizzlies both finished just barely in the bottom third of the league at 22 and 23 respectively, both with 29 wins on the season. So it's not like they're extreme playoff contenders, but they're just a few spots away from getting there. Meanwhile, the Knicks, the Cavs, the Suns, and the Bulls were all horrendous teams. Literally could not watch them play basketball. There was into the season, everyone knew they weren't going to make the playoffs just because of the rosters that they had and the players they had just could not compete. And they're not the ones getting the top talent as a result. So to me, it's watching a lot of the lowest getting not the help that's needed, but the teams that are on the cusp end up getting, you know, the lottery. They get the jackpot. Well, that's a good point. And, you know, it's the thing about that, too, is that um, in addition to the unpredictability of the actual odds and the positioning of the draft, there's also the unpredictability of the actual draft itself. Now, this is we're talking about a year where Zion is, you know, the clear number one. Even people are very high on John Morant. But outside of that, you don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, look at um, Fultz a couple of years ago being the top pick. He was pretty much consensus top pick. I mean, look where that ended up. And so you just don't know. I understand, you know, being a Bulls fan, even being at seven, you're probably not going to get, you know, a future MVP at seven or whatever it is. But um, when you're talking about the top five and kind of mixing that up, I think that the unpredictability of the talent, only having seen some of these guys a couple of games in college, uh, makes it pretty interesting. And you also have to factor in the future injury concerns, um, players' attitudes, things like that. So, you know, I'm not one to really overreact to things like that. You know, it seems like whenever there's drafts, there's always people grading the drafts the next day. How can you grade that when you haven't seen these people perform? I think that you have to look at it long term. Um, and so who knows? You know, maybe the Knicks get a future MVP at three. Maybe the Bulls get it at seven. So you can't really grade it yet. But I think that when you look at the odds and just the overall unpredictability of it, um, it makes it entertaining, you know, is what it comes down to for me. So we don't know who these draft picks are going to be or even how their careers are going to pan out. But I like the unpredictability aspect of it. Yeah, I, for one, uh, I'm torn on it only because my exact train of thought was the Knicks. I watched a few games this year and they, I don't think. God bless your trying, I know, right? <laughs> I don't think they were trying to tank. I literally think that that team just doesn't know how to play basketball. So, like, I really felt bad for them. Like, I thought I'm one of these people. I put my conspiracy hat on. I thought this was rigged from the get-go. <laughs> I thought the NBA wanted Zion in New York, and I think I think they're a little pissed that he's not in New York. But I think it's a little odd that you get a team now like the Pelicans, who were, what, were they a 33-win team? Is that it? Or uh, They won 29. 29. But yeah. that was before Drew Holiday and Anthony Davis got hurt. Yeah. And, I mean, it just seems odd that, I think much I like what the NFL does. The worst record gets the first pick and so on. I just think that's a better way of looking at this. I do think it became more interesting mm -hmm. because, you know, now as a fan of the Miami Heat, who are literally always going to get like the 14th pick. Now there's a glimmer of hope for me at some point that they might get a good pick. So. I, I do think it makes it more intriguing, but I think for the betterment of the league that it, it's not going to work out so great. Because mm -hmm. the My Knicks are going to continue to be terrible, and the, I mean, the Bulls are probably going to continue to be bad, no offense. No, you're the, right. <laughs> the Suns, like, the Lakers getting in at number four, all the, that is good for the league. I'll give them that. Yeah. 
but I, I don't see how overall this is great for the league. My only issue with like the worst getting the best picks and um, and all that. Well, first, I guess I should say the Bulls are going to continue to suck. <laughs> you know what? They could have the number one pick and it would not matter. Like their management is a whole separate issue here. But sure. my only issue with uh, the worst, you know, records having the top picks would be it works in the NFL because there's so few games. So you don't really know if you have a chance at the top pick till maybe week 15, week 16. Um, and kind of the biggest issue, I wrote about this a little bit, that I would see with that is, um, let's say the Knicks, right? Worst record in the league this year. Um, and then you have a team, I know that divisions are not huge in basketball, but you, let's say you have a team like the Nets competing for a playoff spot for positioning. Let's say they play the Knicks, I don't know, twice in the last week or whatever it is. That's like two free wins, and that's not really fair to everybody else because you have maybe two or three teams trying as hard as they can to lose every game to get that top pick, you know, because especially for this year, it would have been Zion, but the lottery gives you um, an aspect of unpredictability where you're not guaranteed one of even the top two or three picks if you have the worst record. So that's kind of the only issue I see with that is that you have teams just trying so hard, you know, maybe two or three teams, even four or five to lose every game at the end of the season. And it just takes away from the product and really affects playoff outcomes as well. I, for one, also don't find tanking to be that bad. Like, look at the Sixers now. They tanked for years, and now they have a team that is immensely fun to watch. They're going to be set for the future. So I don't really think tanking is all that bad, because you're going to have bad teams no matter what. That's just how the game goes. And if you can use it as a strategy like Philadelphia did, then I don't, I don't see it as being all that bad, truthfully. No, I agree. And, and for the teams that are tanking, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if I was running one of those teams, I would say, hell yeah, let's go for Zion. You know, let's lose every game. But um, I think it's about the bigger picture of just the competitive aspect of the league. You don't really see it in other sports necessarily. Um, and so that's kind of my issue with it. And, and ultimately, like I was saying, how it affects playoff positioning down the stretch based on who's playing the tanking teams and who's not. But yes. I totally understand the mentality of wanting the tank. You know, if you and I kind of wrote about this, too, but. If you know in March, early March, your team is way out of the playoffs or has been mathematically eliminated, yeah, you're going to try to lose every game. You're going to try to play all of your young players to develop them, and that basically means losses. So I get the mentality of it. Um, yeah. It's more about the competitive nature, though. Yeah. Yeah, to me, I've just felt that, you know, aside from the fact that this was the worst possible year after the new rules for the Knicks get the worst record in the NBA, mm -hmm. I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel like regardless of that, I just think that the – are just a little overboard on the league's part because, well, I agree with Sula that I like the NFL's order and the worst gets the worst and then you incrementally go up by your record. Um, even with the NBA draft lottery, I thought it was an interesting way of having it when you had 25% as the top pick mm. and then 19% and then 17% and you just start to gradually fall off. But even when you have the worst record, you still have a 25% chance. So you're not guaranteed. Now with, with the worst three teams all having such low odds and then the next team behind that having practically the same ones um it really becomes uh, a coin flip on whether you know with the knicks at the number one spot they had a 48 percent chance of getting the number five pick so when you look at it, that mentality you're pretty much flipping a coin on 50 50 do i get the one pick two pick three pick four pick or do i get the five pick which seems rather extreme for mm. having just had the worst season I think I've ever seen of basketball played. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I just feel like the, the equity spread of it all is just a little overboard on the league's part 
for trying to make it more interesting because I thought what they had before and if they were going to entertain a lottery, I thought that allocation of odds was good enough. I agree. I thought the 25% for the uh, worst team, it's still not a guarantee, as you said. I like uh, A few years ago when it was the um, Cavs, which ended up being, uh, they turned into Anthony Bennett, they didn't have the worst record that year, but they still were able to get the first pick. So I guess karma bit them there, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a different story. But uh, <laughs> I yeah, I thought it was fine before the even spread. I don't, I don't, I agree. I don't think the three bottom teams should have the same percentage, and especially such a low percentage. It, what was it, 16% or 14? 14. 14%? What an odd number, too. That but, is a pretty strange number. But, yeah, I'm just in the camp of I like the old way better than the new way. It's not saying the new way is bad. In fact, like I said, it's still entertaining and brings intrigue, but I thought the old way was fine, personally. Everyone talks about this is going to be the draft of the top three. There are three guys, and then once that fall, once those three go, the, the talent just hits like a very strange uh, drop. Yeah. You know, it, it's Zion, Ja, and RJ, and then after that, you get into a lesser tier of players. Um, but I think that, you know, further to that point, granted, you could have players like someone like a Donovan Mitchell, who was... Uh, should have been rookie of the year because Ben Simmons was a sophomore at that point. Yeah, <laughs> team pick. Yeah, yeah, you know anything could happen later in the in the draft. So every pick that you get is valuable, especially yeah. towards the top. But this year, especially those top three are, I think, especially valuable. So for the Cavs and the Suns and even the Bulls, who all three of those teams really could have used some of those picks, it goes to like a Pelicans and a Grizzlies. Yeah, my favorite part about the lead up to the draft, though. Is there's always that one foreign player who comes out of nowhere <laughs> yeah, and like, goes to the Knicks? Hey, I mean, <laughs> like Luke, Luka Doncic, he's I loved him last season. Oh, he didn't I, come out of nowhere though. No, for not, I mean, he's still a foreign player, like just a guy that, like, you know, we talk about the college kids all the time, and then you get mm-hmm. a guy who played professional overseas. Those are my favorite players, like almost every year. Like, uh, Porzingis. Oh, God. <laughs> who just got beat up in Latvia? I don't know if you guys saw That's that. Right. <laughs> yeah, they need, they need a stepladder probably. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't wait to see the uh, um, overseas guys who come into this draft. That would be interesting. Um, I don't know too well some of those guys. Maybe Leangelo Ball is coming his way. Oh, yeah. Not this year, but it's coming. Lamelo will be there soon. Oh, boy. I saw uh, something that was like how to fix the Lakers. It was like um, draft Lamelo, sign Leangelo, and okay. Clark. Yeah. God, I can't imagine a way to ruin a franchise faster. <laughs> and keep LeBron there too. Oh yeah, of course. You got it. <laughs> um, but you know, we were talking about the the conference finals and what locked the way there for the Raptors was Kawhi's last second shot against the Sixers, uh, a last second covered zone. Um, but a rim rattler that for Toronto fans was amazing, but for Philly fans was an absolute devastating heartbreaker. And it had me thinking that this week for the bottom of the barrel, uh, while it's still relevant, we should talk about some of the worst heartbreakers in the history of sports. You know, you could go about that either way. Maybe that could even be the the draft lottery. You know, Knicks fan, I want a number one so badly, and they got they got cuxed. <laughs> but uh, it could be taken any way you interpret it. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask Sula, what's your number three on the worst heartbreaker? My number three is personally my number one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for the sake of real sports, I put it at number three. <laughs> Speaking of things that are rigged, uh, (laughs) uh, I'm going to back to the WWE like I did last week. 
was WrestleMania 33, Brock Lesnar defeating The Undertaker. And if you are around our age, uh, most likely you watch wrestling at some point, and The Undertaker never lost at WrestleMania. Ever. Ever. At the time, he was 21-0 at WrestleMania. And this was in my low period where I was like, wrestling's stupid. Why would I watch this shit? And I see on Twitter the 21-1 hashtag, and then I had to read about it. I was like, no, this is bullshit. (laughs) This is my entire childhood down the drain. I am furious. And it was it's heartbreaking because when it happened, you go back and watch it. They did WrestleMania in a football stadium. I think it was in New Orleans. Entire place, like 80,000 people, silent. <laughs> Just comp- no one could believe what they were seeing. And I couldn't either. Wasn't there like a conspiracy or a thought that like Undertaker got legitimately hurt? Oh, he was concussed. You, he couldn't, okay. he couldn't walk. <laughs> and that's my well, you brought up New Orleans. David, that might tie into something for you. What's your number three? Yeah, so uh, first I also want to say you preface this trash by talking about the um, Kawhi shot. And I just got to say, Philly, you had it coming, all right? And <laughs> you have to celebrate the double doink. You get screwed by the quadruple <laughs> doink. So there it, it all I comes out. I about that double doink, yeah. Yep, that's all I kept thinking. I was like, all right, well, I just went through this, you know, against the Eagles a couple months ago. But, um, yeah, I had my number three this year's um, NFC Championship game. It's relatively fresh in all of our minds so it doesn't need too much explanation but you know this Saints team the reason why I thought it was kind of heartbreaking Drew Brees being one of my favorite athletes but this Saints team just really felt like they had it together this year Um, they were a team you know Drew Brees has been the best quarterback or one of you know last 10 years or so in the game Um, he does have one Super Bowl win but they never had good defenses they never had a good um, rushing attack to, to kind of support Brees but it felt like this was finally their year you know, they had a good year last year. Um, Kamara coming into his second year, it felt like this was really going to be the year for them. They seemed to be towards the top or at the top of everyone's power rankings, and and that was just heartbreaking. And the worst part about it, of course, I'm talking about the missed pass interference call at the end of the game there. Um, the worst part about it that made it kind of heartbreaking, and again, I'm not even a Saints fan, but just watching it was that it was nothing that the players did. You know, it's not like someone coughed up a fumble or dropped a pass or whatever. It was it was not on the players. And, of course, it wasn't just that call. They failed to execute the rest of the game. But let's be real. I mean, probably 99% chance they win that game if that play is called. So that was pretty heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, especially when Saints fans are putting up billboards for months after talking about how, how <laughs> shitty it was. You know that, that they still can't get over it. It must be a heartbreaker. Mine, too, was a, a football one, but less about the refs and more about the players. Um, and so this might sting, but mm-hmm. in Super Bowl 42, the Pats were going on a perfect season. They were 17-0, and 0, and uh, they were up in the fourth quarter, and Eli Manning, about to get sacked, escapes it, about to get sacked again, escapes it, chucks up a prayer, and David Tyree catches the football one-handed on his helmet, gives the Giants some sort of life at the end of the fourth quarter, and because of it, they march down the field, they score, and they win Super Bowl 42, so... On a Pats perspective, I can't speak as a Pats fan. Maybe you can, but that that can't feel good. That has to be just a horrible, especially when you're in the, the Super Bowl, you know? So that was my number three. Mm. Um, Sula, what do you have as number two? Number two, I have the uh, 2016 uh, Men's Basketball Championship, Villanova and UNC. It was quite possibly the craziest ending I've ever seen. 
And typically, like I did this year for the national championship, I don't watch the beginning of it because <laughs> I learned my lesson when I watched Butler against UConn. It was like the most boring thing I'd ever seen in my life. But this game, <laughs> I was so happy when I turned it on. It was the craziest ending I think I've ever seen. Uh, Villanova was up by three and the clock was winding down. They didn't have a shot clock, so I don't really know what possesses guy to take the shot. But Marcus Page, hand in his face, he pulls it back midair, shoots a three-pointer, makes it, ties the game. Timeout, you know, you got to get over that if you're a Villanova. That's rough. <laughs> like, everyone's looking at this going, wow, we're going to overtime. But uh, Chris Jenkins of Villanova, the ball's on this kid. He just dribbles up and drains a three right in UNC's face. It was unbelievable. I didn't I didn't see this coming at all. And a buzzer beater in the national championship game? How, how do you get better than that? And that was heartbreaking for UNC fans. You thought UNC going into overtime against Villanova, you are so comfortable that you think you're winning that 10 times out of 10, and they just snatched it right from you. That's heartbreaking. Especially in the national championship game, man. You know, you only yeah. get one. It's not like the NBA where you have a seven-game series. You lose, you lose. It's over. Yep, and that was the first of the second uh, of the two uh, Jay Wright championships of Villanova. Yeah. They started a mini dynasty of their own. And of Philadelphia. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Don't love that one. Um, <laughs> this is a new one. We haven't talked about this part on this podcast, but D-Mills, what do you have for number two? Yeah, so at number two, I have the 2009 um, Wimbledon final between Andy Roddick and Roger Federer. Uh, kind of something a little more personal to me. This was around the time when, um, you know, tennis being one of my favorite sports, but this was around the time when I started playing tennis around 2008, 2009. And that's when I really got into it. Um, and these were the two guys that I really grew up watching and that really made me fall in love with the game, quite honestly, of tennis, um, Roddick and Federer. And this was so heartbreaking for Roddick because he ended up losing 16-14 in the fifth set. So for those who don't follow tennis as closely, um, you play best of five sets, of course. And the fifth set in Grand Slams does not go to a tiebreaker. So they ended up playing 30 games total before um, Federer pulled away and won 16-14. It was an incredibly long match. It's considered one of the best tennis matches of all time. But it was so heartbreaking because that felt like it should have been Roddick's moment. I mean, this was Federer pretty much in his prime. Um, but, you know, people were just waiting for Roddick to break through. He was an American, of course. He was he's probably considered one of the best um, American tennis players in the last 10 to 15 years. And everyone felt like this should have been his moment. He played such a great match, but could not pull it off. And it took 30 games in the fifth set for him to lose. So. That's pretty much as heartbreaking as it gets in tennis. Yeah. No, I don't watch a ton of tennis, but uh, from the Wimbledon I went to when I was in uh, when London and we snuck onto center court. There you go. They, they are some quiet people on those tennis courts. I only watch women's tennis. Oh, <laughs> for the grunts? Oh, yeah. Maria Sharapova's grunt is probably the funniest noise in sports. <laughs> That's like the only player I can't watch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I know. Same. <laughs> I turned off like 15 seconds ago. That's enough. <laughs> um, my personal number two, and this goes back to another Pat Super Bowl, surprisingly. You know, I'm a Jets fan, but uh, the Pats just seem to be in some crazy Super Bowls in the 21st century. This one is on the other perspective for the Seahawks in Super Bowl 49. The Seahawks had the ball on the two-yard line and instead of giving the ball to the best running back in the league at the time and Marshawn Lynch, who was a sure thing pretty much to score that ball and punch it over the goal line, uh, they elected to pass. And they passed Russell Wilson right into the hands of Malcolm Butler for a pick in the goal line. 
at the end of the fourth quarter to lose the game for Seattle when they were literally that close to winning their second straight Super Bowl. So as a Seahawks fan, and I wish Ish was here to talk about it from the time he was a Seahawks fan, (laughs) um, but that must just be the worst feeling to know you could have won the game and pretty much from a decision in the playbook chose not to. Nah, man, I don't know what you're talking about. That was a great Super Bowl. Oh, my God. I didn't see any broken hearts where I was. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I was in Florida, so no one gave it to me. We know this might connect to your number one, Matt. Who do you got? Going back to Chaz's number three, to the uh, perf- 2008 Super Bowl, right? 2007, Seven. 2007 season, 2008, yeah. right? Yeah. The 18-1 New England Patriots. You talked about the catch. What makes me more furious <laughs> than the catch is that that's still that exact play. Eli Manning broke like four tackles. There is no reason if you even look at Eli that he shouldn't be on the ground. <laughs> like he was running around the pocket for maybe eight seconds before he finally just chucked the ball up. And that uh, I, I can't even speak. About this. <laughs> yeah. this shit makes me so mad. Yeah. Okay. Well, just because it's Eli. Okay. <laughs> Friggin' Eli, man. Um, you know, this one actually connects to your heat, though. This might give you a little bit uh, a little bit of rejoice. David, who do you have as number one? Yeah, so my number one was the Ray Allen corner three in the 2013 NBA Finals game six that he drilled um, that allowed the Heat to win that game. Now, Matt, you had um, the 2016 title game on your list. That shot by Jenkins was probably the best shot I've ever seen. I totally agree with you on that. I mean, that's unreal. It doesn't get any better than that shot. But this yep. shot right here, in terms of significance, was probably the most important shot um, maybe in NBA history. So to give a little bit of background, um, the Spurs were up, I believe, five with about 30 seconds left. Um, and this was a rare time when Popovich's coaching was kind of questioned because he decided to leave Tim Duncan on the bench um, on that free throw, which allowed uh, Bosch to secure it and basically just kind of hand it off to Ray Allen, who just took a couple steps back into the corner, secured his feet, and just switched the three, um, allowing them to win that game. But that was just an unbelievable play. And it's only appropriate that it was Ray Allen, who's one of the best shooters of all time, uh, towards the end of his career. But his focus, you know, off of a, a missed free throw that only gave him about a second or two to prepare to line up his feet in the corner, make sure it was a three, um, and make it was really just unbelievable. And I remember they were, you know, with the Spurs being up five with 30 seconds left, they were starting to get that trophy presentation ready. They were bringing out the rope to kind of secure the crowd. Um, And then this happened, and it it really was one of the best shots in sports history. So, you know, I didn't really have a strong rooting interest either way in that game, but I remember watching it, and it was just unbelievable. And then, of course, uh, Miami went on to win game seven and win that championship. Um, And that, you know, I don't think anyone saw that coming. It's just felt like the Spurs had secured it. And then after they lost that game six, I felt like they were just deflated. I mean, it seemed like Miami was just destined to win game seven. I don't think it was a close game and that's how it went. So that corner three was unbelievable. Yeah. You know, so you went football for your number one, David, you went basketball. I'm going to go to baseball. We haven't talked about that one yet. And this is uh sure you can maybe call it bias. It's because I've never seen the Mets win a world series. I've seen them lose it. I never seen them win. And so I'm going to go to a World Series in which they did win, but I did not see. I was not born yet. Uh, (laughs) 1986, the Mets and the Red Sox. I know we touched about this in a different bottom of the barrel, Sula, but Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much in Game 6 of the World Series in 1986, the Mets were down uh, two runs in the bottom of the 10th. They have two outs, and they just start rallying off hits, and all of a sudden they're in in position. They tie the game, 
And then Mookie Wilson comes up the bat, not Mookie Betts, nope. as I mix them up. Uh, but Mookie <laughs> Wilson comes up the bat, hits a roller down the first baseline, and an injured Bill Buckner. A lot of people don't realize this, but the, the Red Sox subbed in Buckner while he was hurt to play first base. Uh, normally a pretty good defensive first baseman, but the a slow roller by Mookie. Buckner, because he's hurt, can't get down. It goes through his legs. And the Red Sox, who were up 3-2, had still not uh, broken the curse of the Bambino until 2004. So they were looking. They had the champagne ready. The locker rooms were all set up. Uh, they even had on the scoreboard, uh, the operators were prepared to have congratulations, Boston Red Sox. And all of a sudden, the Mets have life. They score. They win. And then they take game seven, too. So Boston, on a serious World Series drought, had to wait another 18 years to watch it happen. So I think from a Boston perspective, that has to be a huge heartbreaker. That one must have like really sucked. Was the curse of the Bambino, was that already a storyline yes. around then? Oh yeah. So you thought that shit was done with after <laughs> <laughs> 18 years. Yeah. Kanye says 18 years. 18 years. Oh my God. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry. Ooh. It's a whole hey, that's a whatever. <laughs> I think that's the perfect place to cut it then. That's fair. After what that was. That's fair. <laughs> All right, David, dude, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your insight and your expertise on the NBA, and we'll be sure to have you on again and got to hear your thoughts, man. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks for having me on. Of course. All right, guys, as always, this has been Chaz and Sula and our special guest, D-Mills. Thank you again so much for tuning in every week. If you like what we do, please check us out on the Apple Podcast uh, Play Store and give us a nice review and let us know your thoughts in the comments. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think and, and your thoughts and what we could do in future podcasts. And who knows, maybe your ideas come on to one of our segments. Uh, but until then, we'll be checking out the NBA Finals and see who goes, uh, see who takes home the Larry O'Brien trophy. I right, appreciate love and support. See you later, guys. Later. Later.